If this is your first Sunday at Grace Point Church, welcome. But you need to know that uh, I am not Mike McDaniel, who is our lead pastor. Uh, He's younger than I am, and he's stronger than I am, and he has more hair than I do. But that's not exactly an exclusive club, you know. Uh, But he he and Lori are in upstate New York this weekend, where their son Caleb is entering his senior year at West Point, and they will be back with us next week. So, as we begin this morning, I have three letters and one question for you. The letters are D-T-R. How many of you think you know what the letters D-T-R stand for? Now, before you, before you answer, understand that these three letters can turn a grown man into a pool of jello. These three letters strike fear in the heart of any man in a dating relationship. And they make single men so uncomfortable that they won't even say the letters. DTR. What's that stand for? It stands for define the relationship. It's that official talk that takes place at some point in a romantic relationship to determine what the level of commitment is. You know, you you define the relationship and you see where things are. I mean, is it serious or is it casual? Because it's important in a relationship to know when you move past infatuation and when you're gaining traction on, on devotion and commitment and how you feel about the define the relationship talk will be determined in large part by how you feel about the relationship. I mean, if you're both all in to the relationship, then it's no big deal. But if for you, the relationship is a casual one or it's just one of convenience, well, then you might be a little uneasy, a little bit queasy about the talk. And some of you may experience some of those feelings this morning because I want all of us to have a little define the relationship talk. Of course, not in a romantic sense, but in a, in a spiritual sense. So here is a scary question. How do you define your relationship with Jesus? How do you define your relationship with Jesus? You might say, my relationship with Jesus has never been better than it is. It is more vibrant than it's ever been before. And and I, I can't get enough of Jesus. Or perhaps you're here this morning, you say, I'm committed. My relationship with Jesus, I'm committed to Jesus. But if you were to be honest about it, you say, there are times when I take my relationship and I, and I put it in the drawer and I only occasionally bring it off and maybe dust it off, maybe in a crisis, I dust off my relationship with Jesus. Or maybe you're here this morning and you describe yourself as curious. You say, I don't know what it is, but there has got to be more to life than what I'm experiencing. And if that's you this morning, I've got good news for you because Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Or maybe you're here this morning and you would say that, I don't know, none of those words describe me. Maybe the best one is cautious. I like what I've heard about Jesus or what I know about Jesus, but I'm kind of cautious because, frankly, I know some Christians. 
Well, surprise. Jesus did not ever call his followers Christians. Jesus never used the word. In fact, the word Christian only appears in, 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 the, in the Bible three times. The Jesus followers did not describe themselves as Christians. That was a word that was used primarily in a derogatory sense by people that were outside the Jesus community to mock the people that were inside the Jesus community. Jesus didn't use the word Christian. He used the word disciple. In fact, the word disciple appears in in the Bible 296 times by one person's count. So a hundredfold what the term Christian shows up as. And if you've been at church at any time, for any time, and likely even if you haven't, you're familiar with the word disciple. The problem, though, with that word is that it's frequently used, but it's seldom really defined. But I, I, I don't know about you, but I think that if Jesus is going to call his followers disciples, maybe we ought to look at it and see what he meant by it. And maybe that'll help us define our relationship with him as well. So in the original language, the term disciple meant one that was a learner or a pupil. A disciple was one that submitted to a leader and tried to imitate them. A disciple would say, give me some direction. But but really, before you even tell me what to do, my answer is yes. A disciple is one that would learn and then put into action what they had learned. A disciple would go to the leader and say, what would you do in this situation? Okay, I think, I think that's, how I'm good. that's what I'm going to do. And Jesus called people to, to be disciples. And there were at least three things that he expected of people that were going to be his disciples. The first one is that they would be committed to him. Jesus said things like, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus also expected his disciples to emulate his life. He said things like, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are, here's our word, my disciples. If you have love one for another. And Jesus expected his disciples to pass along what they learned. He said things like, if you hold my teaching, you're truly my disciple. Then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. What's interesting is that last sentence, that last verse is etched in stone on courthouses across our country. But very few people realize that it's in the Bible and even fewer realize the context in which it's given. He says, if you hold to my teaching, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Today, we're going to look in a few minutes in Luke chapter 9. You can be turned there if you have your Bible with you. We're going to be turned to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to look at three guys that were would-be followers of Jesus, and we're going to see how Jesus responded to them. But before before we do that, I want to help you define your relationship with Jesus. And so I'm going to ask you a question. To you, is Jesus a transaction or a transformation? Is Jesus transactional or transformational? 
Maybe you go, I don't even understand the question. What are you talking about? Well, we're familiar with transactions, aren't we? I mean, transactions are the backbone of every society and every culture. You're familiar. It's like like an ATM. You put in a card, you get out money. And there's different kinds of transactions. There are economic transactions. I give someone money and they give me lunch. Or I give someone money and they give me furniture or an airplane ticket. And, and, but there are also physical transactions. I eat and I'm not hungry anymore. I exercise and I feel better, at least in theory. That's how that works. But if you think about it, most transactions are actually designed to appeal to our emotion and how we feel, right? Buy a security system for your house and you will feel safe. Buy this cologne or buy these clothes and you'll have more self-confidence. You'll feel better about yourself. Buy this car and you'll feel more successful. And what I'm afraid of is that this transactional mentality has superimposed itself over our spiritual life. And our spiritual life has become a transaction. I choose Jesus. I go to church. I may give some money. I may go on a global adventure. And I get to go to heaven. Win-win, right? But lest you think that this idea of a transactional relationship is something that's just come along in the last few years or decades or even centuries, may I point out that people were just as transactional in Jesus' day. We see people coming to Jesus for a variety of reasons. There are people that come to Jesus for comfort. There's a story in the Bible about Jesus feeding 5,000 people at one time. There's another story about Jesus feeding 4,000 people at one time. They came to hear him. They got fed. There's about 35 or 36 different stories of people that came to Jesus for healing. The lame, the lepers, the blind, the deaf, the demon-possessed. They all came to Jesus, and then most of them we never hear from again. There were people that came to Jesus for for power and for influence. See, the multitudes followed Jesus at largely because they thought that Jesus was going to usher in Israel back to its power and be a powerful kingdom. They thought that Jesus was going to, was going to free them from their Roman occupiers. I mean, even, even Jesus' most closest followers thought that this kingdom was coming really soon. And even those that seemed to say the right things seem to look at Jesus as a transaction. There's a story in the Bible about, about a guy that came to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And when Jesus told him, it says he went away sad. And the reason was because he wasn't willing to submit to what Jesus had asked of him. Jesus drew crowds everywhere he went. And, and people were eager to follow him as long as it improved their lifestyle or it fit their values or it fit their political view. Has anything changed in 2,000 years? 
I mean, listen to our prayers. Is anything different? Most of our prayers are centered around comfort and safety. Father, I pray that I'll have a safe trip from here to there. I pray so-and-so is going there. I pray that you will give them safe travels. Or about influence. Lord, I just pray that my loan application will go through. Or we pray for health, for ourselves, for our family, for our friends, for other people that we know. You might say, whoa, 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 wait. Pump the brakes on that one just a little bit, preacher. Don't you believe in divine healing? Listen, there's no other kind of healing. There's only divine healing. And there's nothing inherently wrong with these prayers. I mean, Jesus told us to pray. But our prayers can be so self-serving. And if you're not experiencing this abundant life that Jesus talked about, I mean, what's happened here? Should, should, I, presume, should I assume that Jesus was wrong? Or could it be that I've settled for something less than what God intended, what Jesus intended? See, because everything Jesus did was designed to produce transformed lives. Paul said it like this, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. And and many people are quick to to claim Jesus' promises. I mean, we like that. But very few are really willing to be transformed. Many people want the Jesus transaction. But can I tell you, Jesus didn't come to be part of a transaction. Jesus came so that people's lives might be changed, so that they might be transformed. And when we look at this and we see that Jesus, that's why Jesus came, you need to, you need to realize that there's other, there were other instances in the Bible where people were transformed. Okay, let me give you two or three examples. There's lots of them. Zacchaeus. You may be familiar with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, you can read the firsthand account of this in Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a Jewish, a Jewish man that collected taxes from the Jewish people. Now, on behalf of Rome, I might add. Now, I don't know exactly how this system worked, but here's what I know. Rome would say, we need this much money. You're the guy to collect it. If you collect anything over that, you get to keep it. And so the Jewish tax collectors were reviled. They were despised by the Jewish people. And this tax collector, who was so reviled, so despised, he met Jesus one day, and it so transformed his life that on the spot he said, listen, I'm going to pay back everybody I've ever cheated. And apparently he kept really good records of that. Because he also said, I'm going, in fact, I'm going to pay them back four times what I cheated them out of. Now, that's a guy that was transformed. Maybe you've heard of a guy named Paul. Paul was the first century ISIS. I mean, Paul was ISIS before ISIS was ISIS. Paul was hunting down the followers of Jesus. He was torturing them. He was killing them. One day... He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. You can read about it, firsthand account, Acts chapter 9. You can read what he said about it. He meets Jesus on the road, and he is so transformed 
that he becomes a church planter all across that area. In fact, he plants churches hundreds of miles away up into what is now Turkey and Ephesus and Corinth and places like that. Hundreds of miles away. Paul wrote 13 books of what we call the New Testament. And then you have the apostles, the 12 guys that follow Jesus most closely. And I don't know if you realize it or not, but these were not, these guys were not exactly the cream of the Jewish crop. At that point in time, in that, in that culture, the smartest, most dedicated boys would be encouraged to find a rabbi and to follow him and to learn through him. And as they're following rabbi, the rabbi, they were to memorize the Torah. Now, the Torah is what we call the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorized by age 10. Now, in my Bible, that's about 280 pages. If you couldn't memorize them by age 10, then they said, well, I'll tell you what, you know, we don't really need you. Maybe you should go home and learn the family trade. And so what would happen is the boys that flunked out of the rabbinic school would then go back and they would become carpenters and fishermen and farmers and that sort of thing. When Jesus called his apostles to follow him, what were they doing? They were fishing, weren't they? A lot, lot of them. One was a tax collector. They were fishing. What does that tell us? Tell us tells us that they were the not good enoughs. They were the guys that didn't make the cut. And yet they were so transformed by meeting Jesus that this ragtag bunch of 12 guys changed the world. They changed the course of human history. So to define the relationship question, the DTR question for you is, who is Jesus to you? Are you following Jesus for the transaction or are you willing to be transformed? Because Jesus wants total transformation. The objective of the gospel is not to make us into, into better behaved people. The objective of the gospel is to make us more like him. How do I know that? Well, fortunately, he told us where he quoted the verse one time in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. It says, and Jesus said to them all, meaning he wasn't just talking to the apostles or some, some people that were close to him. He said it to all, anybody who was in earshot, Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me. What he was saying was, if you're going to follow me, it can't be about what you want. If you're going to follow me, what you want is not the highest priority. It can't be about your priorities and what you think is important. You need to deny yourself and follow me. Now, I don't know about you, but it, <laughs> it seems to me that a guy that, was one, that had just a very short time to make an impact, wouldn't have been quite so picky about who he had following him. I mean, you say, well, shouldn't Jesus have been more accommodating? I mean, shouldn't he, couldn't he have been more inclusive? 
Instead, he raises the bar. What's that about? I think it's because Jesus knew that only those that are all in can really make a difference. A lot of us don't mind a once a week on Sunday kind of Jesus. You can come to Grace Point Church. You can sing the Psalms. You might be able to find the Bible app on your phone. You can fill in the blanks in the bulletin. And when you go home, you can say a blessing, a prayer over, over lunch. But none of that makes you a disciple. Jesus said, if you want to be a disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. So now we come to our story. One of those apostles I was talking about was a guy named Luke. Luke was a contemporary of Jesus. In the gospel of Luke that we have written down, he tells his firsthand stories of what he saw and what he heard. And in here in Luke chapter 9, there's a story of three guys that are would-be disciples. And let's take a look at it and see what happens, what keeps these guys from being disciples. Because, you know, maybe, just maybe, that's what's holding us back too. So let's look at the story. In Luke chapter 9, verses 57 and 58, it says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, meaning Jesus, says, I will follow you wherever you go. Good start. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Huh. See, Jesus never promised a life of ease and comfort. Jesus never pulled any punches with what he expected for those that were going to follow him. He was always very clear because he wanted those that, would under, that were going to follow him to understand what they were getting into. And if you're familiar with some of the stories, you know Jesus had a way of cutting right to the heart of the matter. And for this guy, that might seem like an odd response. The guy says, I'll follow you. You say, well, I have no place to lay my head. That might seem like a really odd response. But Jesus knew that for this guy, security and comfort were more important than being a disciple. Security and comfort were more important than being a disciple. Could it be that we're the same? Could it be that we have made security or comfort and safety our God? Comfort and safety is what we work for. It's what we live for. It's what we sacrifice for. And then we tip Jesus with two hours of our time sometime during the week. Could it be that comfort and safety are our God. See, this guy, this guy spoke words of, con, of, of commitment. <laughs> but then when Jesus painted a picture of what that commitment looked like, he decided he had second thoughts. He decided it wasn't for him. And Jesus' call to deny ourselves and to follow him is in direct conflict with our desire for comfort, safety, security, and ease. A disciple doesn't say, what can I do to be more comfortable? Because there may be nothing comfortable about following Jesus' call. 
And maybe that's what keeping you, what's keeping you from being a disciple. Could it be that's what's keeping you from being a disciple? Let's look at the second guy. In verse 59, we meet him. And it says, to another, he, meaning Jesus, said, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. <laughs> now, maybe you read, the, read this guy's reason for putting off Jesus. I mean, after all, he's going to go bury his father. Maybe you read that and go, man, Jesus is a little bit harsh there, don't you think? But, it, but you need to know that in all likelihood, this guy's father wasn't dead yet. In fact, he may not even have been ill. Because go and bury my father was a cultural euphemism of the time, which meant when my parents die. So in all probability, what he was saying was, when my parents die, when I have my inheritance, when I know they will not disapprove of me anymore, then I'll follow you. That wasn't good enough. For Jesus. See, a lot of us put off Jesus like we put off going to the gym or that diet we keep meaning to start. We say, I'm going to start eating healthy right after I fit, polish off this chimichanga, right? And we do the same thing with Jesus. We say, first, let me go do what I want to do. We say, I'll start tomorrow. Or when I get out of college, or after we're married, or after we have children, or when I have a less demanding job, like that's ever going to happen, right? This guy was saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. I really do. But, you know, the timing's just not right on this. I got other things that I, that I want to do. I find it very interesting that this guy called Jesus Lord... But then he wanted to do something other than what Jesus asked him to do. Three chapters earlier in Luke, Jesus asks a very poignant question. And I think it's a question for us today. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Because, see, we can't have it both ways. We can't have it. We say, Jesus, I'm following you. You are my Lord. You are my master. But I want to do this. This is my priority. We can't have it both ways. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. I don't know what's holding you back. It may be something that seems, you know, very legitimate. But Jesus is saying now. Now's the time. And see, here's what I know. The longer that you put off Jesus, the less likely you are to ever let him transform you. I saw a report recently on something called the, the New Vegetarians. And uh, this report, there was a lady that quoted it. And she said, I usually eat vegetarian, but I really like bacon. That's a problem if you're a vegetarian, right? But she, she represents a growing number of people that are vegetarians who call themselves, all right, here's a new word for you. I did not know this word existed, who call themselves 
flexitarian, okay? Now, I can't make this stuff up. Legit, flexitarian, right? And so what, what this lady, they, these are vegetarians that mostly eat a vegetarian diet, but occasionally they'll eat meat. Now, I usually eat a meat diet, and occasionally I eat vegetarian, so I'm not sure whether I fall into their flexitarian word or not. But this lady explained it this way. She goes, I really like, a veg- I really like vegetarian food, but I'm not 100% committed. And what I'm afraid of is that flexitarian can describe our view of our relationship with God, with Jesus. We have flexible priorities. We say, I'm committed, but not in this area. We say, I love Jesus, but not in this area, not in with these people or when I'm at this place or when I have this opportunity, then I'm not 100% committed. I have flexible priorities. I love Jesus, but I really don't want to change my life. I mean, I like my life the way it is. I don't think my life needs, I don't want it to be changed. Is it possible that we make a decision to believe in Jesus, whatever that means, is it possible that we can make a decision to believe in Jesus and not be all in? I mean, can we follow Jesus on our terms? Can we follow Jesus, but with our priorities? I think we try to, but Jesus said, what? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. What's keeping you from being a disciple? Let's look at the third guy in verse 61. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, if you grew up on the farm, you know that nobody can plow a straight line unless they have their eyes focused on the target. And what Jesus was saying is, it's not about comfort and safety being our God. It's not about flexible priorities. He said, I don't want half-hearted followers. Jesus is not looking for people that are going to constantly be looking over their shoulder or second-guessing themselves or wondering what what they're missing out on. Listen, Jesus never sugarcoated what he expected from people that wanted to follow him. You can do an exhaustive study and look all through the Bible and you won't find one place where Jesus said, it's okay to follow me in a half-hearted manner, where it's okay to follow me in a passive manner, in a lukewarm manner. In fact, Jesus said just the opposite. Five chapters after this, in Luke 14, after this story, Jesus said, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. So which is Jesus for you? A transaction or a transformation? Because being a disciple means leaving behind that that transactional, religion 
for a transformational relationship with the God who created you and loves you? Transaction or transformation? And you might say, well, okay, I'm tracking with you. But how do I go about being transformed? And you might expect, expect me to say, you know what you need to do? You need to grit your teeth and try harder. That's the secret. Or you may be expecting me to say, you need to commit to Jesus. You need to make a commitment. And I would say to you, no, that's not it. I can commit to a lot of things. I can commit to trying to be more patient. I can commit to a diet. I can commit to exercise. But that's not what transforms me. If I want to be transformed, I have to surrender to Jesus. I surrender my entire life to Jesus and allow him to transform my will, my desires, my emotions, my relationships, and even my very reason for living. A disciple must surrender everything to following Jesus. Every area of my life. Now, having said that, there's three areas that I want to point to just for the next few minutes. I must be willing to be transformed by the gospel. By the gospel. Let me tell you a quick story. About three years ago, uh, I was on a global adventure to Vietnam, and I met a young man there named Nam. Yes, he was Nam from Vietnam, I think. And... Uh, I got to talk. I met him in a park. He was a student, um, university student. I got to talking to him, and he asked me in the course of our conversation, he says, so what kind of business or what do you do? What kind of business are you in? And that's always a difficult question to answer for, for a pastor, uh, particularly in a church in a country that does not allow people to share their faith freely. And I said, well, I help people learn how to live life with purpose. Nam said, I would like very much if you would tell me how to live life with purpose. And so I told Nam, I told the story about how Jesus, how God created man to have a perfect relationship with him. But man was disobedient, sinned. And that, that, that disobedience and that sin separated God from man. And the penalty for that disobedience, the penalty for that Sin was an eternal separation from God, and there's nothing that man can do to get his way back to God. There's no penalty. There's no, there's no price that he can pay that's big enough to get his way back to God. And I said, so, Nam, that's when God, in his infinite mercy, sent or came to earth in human form. He sent his son named Jesus. I said, Nam, you ever heard of Jesus? And I expected him to say, no, never heard of him. But Nam was educated. And Nam, so Nam says, well, I think I have. Um, isn't, he the, isn't he the God of Europe? I thought, okay, fine. I haven't heard that one before, but we, we can start there. And I said, okay, Nam, Jesus was God in the body. And Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. And God said, I'm going to allow him to pay the penalty for every man's sin. 
And it's a, it's a gift that's available for everyone. But just like any gift, it's something that each person must accept. Although it's freely available, only those that accept the gift will have it. And those that accept the gift of Jesus' payment for their, for their sin and their disobedience will have a fully restored relationship with God. And after I talked to Nam about that, I said, uh, and, and actually I talked to him that day and went back two, three days later and talked to him again. Ended up, this is the, when I was, this picture was taken, I gave him a Bible. And I said, Nam, what are you going to do with what you've heard? And like any good university student, he said, well, I, I think I need to understand more. I need to understand it better. I need to study more. I said, Nam, you know enough. You know enough. And I would say the same thing to you this morning. If you've never had an opportunity to have a personal relationship with the God that created you and loves you, allow yourself to surrender yourself to be transformed by the gospel. Make this the day that you allow yourself to be transformed by the gospel. Your life will never be the same. So the first place that we need to submit to being transformed is by the gospel. The second place is by meaningful relationships with other disciples. Now, can I tell you, I have never met a single person who said that the key to their spiritual maturity was that they were, they had no relationship with any other disciples. They say, I am closer to God than I've ever been because I don't talk to any other disciples. I've never, never talked to anybody like that. In fact, Scripture says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. Our communitas groups have four core values. The core values are that we want to be rooted in Scripture, We want to be growing in Christ-likeness. We want to be in meaningful relationship with other disciples, and we want to be serving. And they're all important. But perhaps the most important one is the relationship part. It might surprise you. But we want people to be in meaningful relationship that results in life change. Relationships are not optional for a disciple. They're essential. If if you want to grow spiritually, you must be connected relationally. You've seen animals in the wild, whether it's zebras or, or sheep or goats or whatever. You've seen animals in the wild, and when they're in a herd, they don't get attacked. But you let one of them wander off and get out there by themselves... And they're exposed. And the same thing is true spiritually. Here's a life principle for you. If you insist on going it alone, you will never be what God intends for you to be. If you insist on going it alone, you'll never be what God intends for you to be. So if you're not in a communitas group, maybe today's the day you make the decision, I'm going to find me a group. Or if you've been in a group before, but you've been laying out for the summer and it's time to start, this is the day. Why are you going to put it off? It's just like the chimichanga thing. Why are we putting it off? 
If, if, if it's so important to be in relationship with other disciples, then let's make this today. So we want to be transformed by the gospel. We want to be transformed by meaningful relationships with other people. And we want to be, we, we must surrender to being transformed by consistent, spending consistent time with God. Now, I've quoted this verse several times. How, many, how often did Jesus say we were supposed to take up our cross? Daily, right? Daily, he said to take up your cross. This, what happens in here on Sunday morning, was never intended to sustain us for a week. We must consistently intersect with God's word. Not for information about, you know, the culture or anything like that or how many people are in this story and who went where. That's just information. We must consistently intersect with God's word for transformation. Paul said it like this, all Scripture is God-breathed. Think about that. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. And that's why two of our core four values in our communitas groups are to be rooted in Scripture, growing in Christ-likeness, because we want to be about applying God's Word to our lives and allowing it to transform us. Do you, do you realize these aren't just words on a page? All Scripture was God-breathed. Do you, do you realize that the God that inspired, the Holy Spirit that inspired man to write these words is the same Holy Spirit that resides within every disciple? The same Holy Spirit. And so the, and the Holy Spirit residing within the disciple helps <clears throat> us interpret Helps teach, helps correct, helps rebuke. You might say, well, how does that work? Well, let me give you an example. In Galatians 5, verse 22, Paul lists what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. And he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And I used to look at this this verse, like it was a buffet. And I got to choose which ones I wanted. And I'd look at it and I'd go, well, I'm pretty good at self-control, so I'll give myself a pass on the patience thing. Or I'd look at it and say, faithfulness is, is an attribute of mine. I consider myself to be pretty faithful, so it's okay if I'm not very kind or not very good. And there came a time, and it, I'm embarrassed to say it wasn't that long ago, Whereas I was reading this scripture, Holy Spirit got a hold of me and said, it's not okay to just settle for one or two. This is the fruit of the, of the Spirit. It's all nine of those things. And I said, but, but, but that's just how I am. It was like an audible voice to me said, no, that's how you were. That's how you used to be. But if you want to follow me, you need to be producing this kind of fruit in your life. You know, the closer I get to a holy God, the more obvious even, even my smallest flaws become. Being a Christian is a pretty good deal. I mean, think about it. I serve at church. I... 
read my Bible, I pray for four meals. And God keeps me and my family safe, provides for us financially, even gets me that occasional parking spot when I really need it. But lately I'm thinking, I feel like God wants to give me more. There's more out there. So I pray, God, I'm ready. I'm ready to take our relationship to the next level. I know you have more in store for me. I want it. Just show me what you want me to do in order to receive the life that you have waiting for me. Amen. Hi, Tommy. Uh, whoa, who, who are you? I'm God. <laughs> no, you're not. Yes, yes, I'm God. You said the prayer. I'm here. That's how this works. Okay, God. Uh, if you're God, why don't you make it snow in here? See, now, if I made it snow in here, everything get kind of yucky, and I don't think I want to do that right now. See, you're not God. Why would you say that? Because God wouldn't say yucky. Yes, I do. It's a Greek word. Huh. Well, all right. What's, what's Lamentations 15.9 say? Lamentations only has five chapters. Why is it so short? I was tired of lamenting. Okay. <laughs> okay, if you're God, who's going to win the World Series? You know, I'm not so much into playing games. Why are you so into playing games? You are God. What gave it away? You did that thing where I asked a question and you answered it with a question. I did? <laughs> yeah, I do that, don't I? <laughs> Did it again. See, right there. All right. Come on, step right up. Let's go. Whoa, hey, what's this? These are the tools I'm going to use to make you into my original masterpiece. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, I I thought you were a carpenter. That's my son. Okay, step right up here. Let's go. Wait, before we start chiseling thing going on here, like how do you know what to chisel, what to keep? Well, I just remove the things that are not of me. Kind of like dead weight. Oh, I get it. Uh, you know what? Can you help me with this? Because I've tried everything. I mean, I watch what I eat. I kind of like do that. I even tried Pilates once. That was awkward. But, I mean, I'm just thinking maybe a little six-pack idea here. with that. So are you going to talk or can I chisel? So what's it going to be? Talk, chisel, talk, chisel. Oh, chisel. Most of my children like to talk. Oh, no, not me. Chisel. Okay. All right. You've got a lot of anger. Well, Oh, and some pride. And you compare yourself to others when you should be comparing yourself to me. And you're lazy. Yet you like to pretend you're really, really busy. Oh, you've got a problem with lust. Whoa, 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 hey, time out. I do not have a problem with lust. <laughs> you don't have a problem with lust. I can do it whenever I want. Okay, maybe I have a little problem with it. But you know what? Maybe we just, maybe it's time for a timeout. I mean, I'm doing pretty well. You've done okay. some good stuff. You are doing pretty good, but when you look in the mirror, who do you see? I see me. Then I need to keep chiseling, because ultimately, you and others need to see me. Listen, no offense, but when I start to look more like you, it kind of freaks people out. Right? Kind of, they kind of get uncomfortable and that kind of stuff. So. so what you're saying is you'd rather play God in certain areas of your life 
and instead of allowing me to be God over your whole life. I did not say that. It's what you meant. Yes, it was. Um, but it's really hard to talk to you because you kind of get in behind my head and you know what I'm thinking. What I'm trying to say is, you've done some good work here. Let's just take a break, you know, take a breather. We can come back to it. So what you're doing right now is common. It's called controlling. So would you rather control the things in your life or can I chisel? You want to control, chisel, control, chisel. Chisel. Okay, so here we go. Can we chisel where I want to chisel? It's called control. Okay. Okay. I'm ready. See, now, this you've been holding on to for a very long time. Are you ready for this? Yeah, bring it on. Ah. Ow! That really hurts. This hurts me more than it hurts you. Yeah, right. <laughs> Listen, I don't think you understand what this pain is like. I know about this pain. I sent my son Jesus to die on the cross to free you from this. You know what insanity is? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. And you keep holding on to these things, things in your life that you've held on to for a long time, even since high school, and they just doesn't work. And you run to these empty wells over and over again whenever you're hungry or tired or lonely or scared, and it just doesn't work. Listen, I think... Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Okay, but if there's another way we Your could... ways are not my ways. Listen, I can't, all right? I can't do it. Can't what? Everything. Everything you ask me to do. I, I try and be loving, but then along comes somebody who's a real jerk, right? And I, I, I try and be joyful, but then life comes along and just kicks me in the face. And I try, I, I try and be patient, but my kids, my kids are so annoying. And it's like that with everything. I try and be kind. I try and be faithful. I try and be, <laughs> I try and be self-controlled. But every day, I fail over and over and over again. And that, that's my life. So you think your failures can somehow stop me from making you into the man I intended you to be before I created the world? What? Forget it. You wouldn't understand. I, God of all the universe, wouldn't understand something that one of my children has to say to me. Try me. It's just... Just I've let you down so many times. You were never holding me up. I hold you up. You think this relationship that we have is about what you do for me and what I do for you. That may be how it works in this world, but not in my kingdom. See, our relationship is about you learning about me, learning, letting me you know, work in you, you learning to trust me. And that's how I make you into my original masterpiece. Well, then what am I supposed to do? You've already taken the first step. You've admitted you can't do it yourself. Doesn't sound very impressive. It's actually quite impressive and takes a lot of courage. And so does this next part. You surrender to me. Let me make you into my image. That's it? Just surrender? It's not as simple as it sounds. Is this easy? You see, and this is where the trust part comes in, okay? So all these things that you've been trying to be, faithful, kind, gentle, self-controlled, these are the fruit of the Spirit, okay? But you can't make fruit. Only I can grow fruit, 
and through me, you know, without me, you can do nothing. So deep down inside, you've known this for a long time. So do you trust me? Do I trust you? Yeah. Yes. I trust you. Good. Now we can take this, take this to the ne- next level. Yes, you can do nothing without me, but through me, all things are possible. All things? <laughs> yes, all things. Even patience with your kids. Trust me, that's something I've experienced very recently. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm feeling different already. Oh, and I'm just beginning. You know, we're usually okay with a little touch-up work and maybe some minor changes. But Jesus wants transformation. Are you going to settle for a transaction? Or are you going to surrender to Jesus so that you might have the maximum possible relationship with him? I, I don't know how you define your relationship with Jesus. Could be this casual, could be that you're curious, could be that you're committed, could be that you're cautious. But here's what I know Jesus wants a transformational relationship with you. So, transaction or transformation? your decision. You get to choose. You get to decide whether to you, Jesus is just going to be a transaction, whether you're going to allow him to transform you into being more like him. Because only those that are surrendered to Jesus are going to experience that abundant life that Jesus promised for his disciples. Why don't you bow your heads with me? We'll pray over us. Father God, I don't know how we got so off track. How we think that somehow our relationship with you is a is a quid pro quo. I do this and you do that for me, a transaction. Lord, I pray that you move in our hearts and make us want to surrender to you, to be transformed by you, to be more like you. And it's in your son's holy precious, perfect name that I pray, the name above every name, the name of Jesus. Do your work in us, Father.